Ezra 9 opens <laughs> with Ezra learning that the Israelites have sinned. <gasps> right? They've sinned. Um, how have they sinned? Well, they've intermarried with idolaters in the land. Okay, there's been intermarriage. Now, let me, let me, let me explain this real quickly, and then we're going to fly through the, the rest of the context and the text this morning. Okay? Um, so so the, Ezra opens with the realization right, that the people that he's leading, the people that he's caring for, the people that are supposed to be worshiping God and God alone, are now intermarrying with groups of people that are outside of the house. Okay? They're outside of the body. Okay, um, as, as, as we like to coin the term today, right, they're missionary marrying, not just missionary dating, right, they're missionary marrying, right, and, and that seldom works out, amen, okay, it, it, there may be a few exceptions, right, but it seldom works out, and so that's the, the sin, and why is it sin? Well, because God had told him not to, right, God had told him not to. And we can talk about how, you know, New Testament, there's neither Jew nor Greek, you know, all, 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 those, different, all those different things. And so Jesus might, 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 might change some things from the Old Testament to New Testament, but nonetheless, here in this context, and we don't have a full, full amount of time to really dive into the history of this context, but, but God had, had asked them, right, to be faithful to their people and, and, um, and not intermarry with idolaters in the land. Make sense? And so when we talk about sin from this text this morning in chapters 9 and 10, and that's the fluffy, encouraging thing that Ezra ends with. And, 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 and to give you a little bit of more history, probably ends that way abruptly because Ezra and Nehemiah, back in the day, before, before Bible editors and all of that added verses in and chapter breaks and all of those things, Ezra and Nehemiah were, were one letter. And so Ezra ends his portion with this, and then Nehemiah picks up the portion with rebuilding the wall. Okay, so you really have to read Ezra and Nehemiah together to, to get to get the whole story and to get the continuation of events, right? What we're going to do, we're going to hit Nehemiah, but we're going to do something. I'm going to press pause after today because I've had numerous conversations and, and, and things happen over the last couple of weeks where I feel like there's a felt need that we just need to talk about as a church for three weeks. I'm not going to tell you what it is. You're going to have to come back Sunday to hear about it, okay? That video has a little bit to do with it. Um, maybe that's why it's hitting me so gushy right now. Um, but, uh, but we're going to spend three weeks talking about something that I believe many people in this room and many people in our lives are struggling with. Okay, And we're going to do that for three weeks. And then we're going to hit Advent for four weeks. And then January 1st, January 8th, probably January 15th, I'm going to uh, talk about vision for 2023. I've got some things I want to ask you to do in 2023, all right? And I can't wait for January 1st. Um, that message is one you don't want to miss, okay? So go to bed early December 31st, okay? Set your alarm for like 11.45, because you don't need to see the 10 to 11.45. It's just, okay? And then wake up for New Year's, and then go back to sleep so you can be here Sunday morning, rested and ready to take some notes, Okay? Um, January 1st, 18th, probably 15th, we'll do vision. And then January 22nd, we'll hit Nehemiah. 
okay? And we'll go to Nehemiah for about 10 to 12 weeks, and then we'll be in a new building. And I'm praying through Colossians or Ephesians. Um, anyway, and then, we'll, and then we'll see where God takes us from there, okay? Everybody's like, we were planning the Holy Spirit right out of it. No, I'm not. I plan to start Nehemiah next week. And he's messing all of it up because hopefully we finish Nehemiah before we move into the new building, right? We'll be telling those guys, hey, we need a couple more weeks because we're not done with Nehemiah, okay? Um, Anyway, so that gives you the full context, right? So let's look. Ezra chapter 9, starting in verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. Abominations, big word, sin. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of all the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief... Uh, men has been foremost. Verse 3, as soon as I heard this, now again, Ezra's writing, so as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Have your kids ever made you want to pull your hair out? (laughs) Ezra was there. All of the people that he's been leading are now doing things that are against everything he's taught them. Sound familiar? Everything he's taught them, and they're doing it. And so as soon as he hears it, he kind of goes on a rampage. He tears his cloak. He sits down. He pulls his hair from his head and his beard. He was really appalled. Verse 4, Then all who trembled at the word of God, at the words of God, of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. What a picture. What a picture. Ezra, the leader, has tried to teach these people the ways of God, the things of God, the things to do, the things not to do. And one of those things not to do was not to intermarry with people of idolatrous beliefs and lifestyles. And again, this is not a race thing, okay? It's a worship thing, right? And so, and so, and so Ezra hears about this and is so appalled. And then the people gather around him as he's appalled. And I love the end of the picture here. At the evening sacrifice, he rose from his fasting as he was. Didn't try to clean himself up. Didn't try to brush himself off whatsoever. His garment, his cloak torn, and he fell on his knees and spread out his hands to the Lord his God. What a picture of humility as a leader. And here we see the people exposed, right? These first four verses talk about how the people have been, excuse me, first five verses, the people have been exposed. I want you to notice, Ezra didn't raise the issue. Ezra was teaching the Bible. He was modeling the ways of God, the way of worship, and the officials came to him to confess the sin. Their sin had been exposed rightly by the word of God. By the teaching of God. Their sin had been exposed by, the, by his faithfulness to the word of God. Friend, family, you don't have to. 
You don't have to bear the weight of pointing out sin in other people's lives if you're modeling the way of Scripture. God convicts sin. Take that as encouragement this morning. Take that as encouragement. And so we see them exposed. And so my question for you this morning is this. Because we like to hide these parts of ourselves, don't we? How do our hearts need to be exposed? Where does light need to be shined in our hearts, in our lives, in our doubts, in our shame, in our fear, in our unbelief? Where do our hearts need to be exposed? And then we see in verses 5 through 7 the confession. So we see Ezra falling on his knees. Oh my God, he says in verse 6, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Verse 7, from the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and for the iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, to, and to utter shame as it is today. I want you to see something really huge. Um, can you throw up, um, throw up verse 5, maybe 6. How about 6? Throw up verse 6. How's that? Yes, perfect. Okay. I want you to see something in verse 6. Ezra, again, appalled. Right? Because he's tried to model this, he's tried to teach this, and now he's hearing about the sin and the land among the peoples that he's walked with, that he's called, that he's on mission with. Okay? that he's in church with, Sunday after Sunday. And Ezra has every right to kind of switch this to being accusatory in his speech. But I want you to hear his prayer. Oh my God, I'm ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you, my God, for... What's that next word? Our iniquities. He doesn't say... He doesn't say, God, can you believe these people? Right? Let's wipe them out. Give me a new people. Right? Give me a new people. No. He says, these are the people that I've been called to, that I'm embracing, and this is us. Great TV show. This is us. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. He includes himself in the confession. That's powerful. What does that look like for us? That if there is sin and shame among us, that we bear it together. Our warts, our deficiencies, the places where we don't measure up, instead of saying, hey, would you just just get it together? Because you're really holding us all back. Like, we believe God would really bless us as a church if you would just get your act together. If you guys would just get your marriage together. If you guys would just, come on, get your finances together. Stop living in such sin with your finances. Right? No. That's not how this worked. Right? That's why I stand up here week after week after week reminding you, as if you forget, Reminding you that I'm just as broken as you are. 
Because listen to me, the faster that we own our brokenness, and in doing so, own our need, our desperate need for God, guess what? The more He's going to use us. The more He's going to use us. And so we see the confession here, but we see the confession probably not in a way that we would have anticipated it. He got up. He goes. He, he, he lays before his God in humility. In the recognition of how devastating, no doubt, the sin was to God. But he owns it. And so my question for you in this is, Today, not only where does the light need to be shown in your heart, in your life, but do you own the fact that you need to confess? You've all heard me probably share this illustration. Actually, maybe not. Um, but, but, uh, but a guy wrote a, wrote a book one time called um, Killing the Spider, which is a great book, right? Because I think every spider... I watched it this morning. There was a spider on the door back there as we were coming in, and Jeff tries to catch it and like hold it and ease it down to the ground to go and live its life. And I just wanted to crush his hopes and dreams and just stomp on the thing. Oh, but, but pastor, spiders eat bugs. I don't care. I don't care. They, eat, they probably eat bugs that I'm cool with. I'm not cool with spiders. Thank you. I'm about to get real up in here, right? But, um, but, but the whole premise of the book is how, you know, we, we, we deal with the things that are safe, right? We deal with the things that are safe to deal with, but there's this spider in the kitchen that lives in the corner, but we don't have the strength and we're scared to walk over into the corner and just step on the thing. We, just, we, we won't step on the thing. We won't kill the spider. And so then the spider just wreaks havoc on us internally. Wreaks havoc. Right? Causing us to live in shame and these burdens that we carry that a lot of times we're paralyzed by and we don't even know it. We don't even know it. We're going to get into that in the next three weeks. But anyway, you see it, right? And so he, he's owning it. He's owning and, uh, the sin of the people. He includes himself in that. What humility as a leader, if you're a leader in the room, and, 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 and many of you are, right? I, I, would, I would see that and say, wow, I need, I need to be more like Ezra in this. And then verses 8 and 9, we see God's faithfulness. Look there. But now, for a brief moment, favor. Underline that, highlight that, star that, because it's so important. No matter where you are in your sin, God's favor is still very much apparent. The fact that He bought you on the cross, the grace that Dylan talked about just a little bit ago before we sing it as well. Because of the cross, we can sing that over our circumstances because God's favor is present through Christ and the work He did on the cross. And here we see it. A brief moment. Favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant, a remnant excuse me, and to give us a secure hold within His holy place. That our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. What's he praying for? Revival. And he believes God's faithfulness to do it in the midst of their sin. That's beautiful. Why? Because they're owning their sin. They're confessing it. They're coming to God with it. 
For we are slaves, verse 9, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the, king of, the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And so we see God's faithfulness. See, Ezra acknowledges that God has shown grace to Israel in their continued existence, and even in their sin, their continued faithfulness. They're a remnant indeed. Of the 600,000 people that came out of Egypt, 50,000 remain. They're a remnant. But God granted them favor. And Ezra stresses that God didn't forsake His people, and that He has shown His steadfast love to them in allowing them to rebuild the temple and renew the worship of God in Jerusalem. And we see the word wall in verse 9 that launches us into Nehemiah because Nehemiah is all about the rebuilding of the wall. And so my question for you today, in your brokenness, And the light that needs to be shown in your life, will you proclaim that He is enough for you today? In your loneliness, will you proclaim that He is enough for you today? Will you worship Him? Will you trust Him? And then we jump into chapter 10. Oh, bummer. Sorry, Yaku. Jerry. I've already named him. Um, Jerry the giraffe. So original. Okay. Um, so we're going to jump down to chapter 10 because we see the confession and the repentance. Okay, and we really see this in the first 15 verses and then Ezra ends very gracefully. And Ezra ends with a long list of names. And those names are all of the names of the people that had sinned by intermarrying with idolatrous tribes. And so... And so congratulations, sinners, you made a list, right? And that's how Ezra ends and then launches into Nehemiah rebuilding the wall. But let's, let's focus on the first five verses here in closing. Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. A very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. And the people wept bitterly. They were bothered by their sin. And Shekinah... I had it this morning. I read it. I practiced it for y'all. Shechaniah, thank you. The son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, we have broken faith with our God. We have broken faith with our God. Sin is not something to play with, family. Look at the strong wording there. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this, in spite of our sin. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commitment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task. And we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take oath to say that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Now what's happening here? 
to sum it up, to sum, these, to sum these five verses up, and really the first 15 verses of chapter 10 as Ezra lands the plane in his book and his portion of this and his portion of Ezra and Nehemiah, to sum it up, basically, they're bringing their lives in line with God's. They're bringing their lives in line with the Bible. And my question for you is, is this what repentance looks like in your life? I mean, we, we can, we can, we can, <laughs> the, 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 the intermarriage, right, that can rub us a certain way. Okay? But again, that's the sin that they're involved in, in their lives. And so don't get so caught up in that to excuse yourself in continuing to live a life against what God has called you to. To live a life against the things that He has put in front of you. To live a life of disobedience. And so as this repentance looks like in your life, to to make a frank and full confession with sincere sorrow. There was weeping in full awareness of God's justice and mercy followed by a clean break with the sin in your heart. Because that's repentance. We don't make much, we don't make enough of that now in today's church. There are many churches that won't even say the word sin or talk about repentance. Even though the Bible is full of it. Repentance is taking your sin, your shame, laying it at the cross, and walking away from it. Now, there's a process for that, right? And we see here that they were together in this. Right? They were together in this. Many of us are held in bondage by so much sin because it's not in the light. It's not in the light. It's not in the light. Now, that doesn't mean we necessarily need to stand up here and, and just have public confession. But there's a, is there a group of people that you're putting with that we talk about in the golf illustration or maybe that you're in, in a small group with that would know whether you go to ice cream or the internet? See how those both began with I? I didn't even do that on purpose. It was just natural. This is what repentance looks like for the people who know God. People who know God understand that God is just, but He's also merciful. And God is not merciful because we can talk Him into being merciful by explaining away our behavior. No, God is merciful because He's merciful. And He shows mercy to whomever he pleases. So with a full and frank confession, we hope for mercy. Why? Because we know God. Because we know God. And then Ezra ends. The author doesn't reflect on what he's described. He shows us the scene and he concludes. Again, 
part of this may be due to the fact that in the ancient world, Ezra and Nehemiah were treated as one book, so it may have concluded Ezra's work, and then sometime later, about 13 years, and so we're going to go about 10 to 13 weeks just to really feel the weight of Ezra and Nehemiah and how it would have been structured. Nehemiah was written. And so we come to the end of the book of Ezra. And here's how I want to close this down. The book seems to indicate that the greatest threat, get this, Ezra seems to indicate that the greatest threat facing the returned community that rebuilt the house, that their greatest threat is not one that comes from the outside. That we talked about in chapters 1 through 6. Rather, the greatest threat to Israel is one that comes from their own sin. The greatest threat to Israel comes from their own insecurities, from their own iniquities, from their own shame. The greatest threat to us is us. I mean, I wish you could hear sometimes in staff meeting or when I'm just sharing with folks within the body. I've always believed this ever since God called me here in 2011 that if the church could just get out of its own way and let God truly work and move among us, revival would happen. Now, revival is probably not going to look like the way you want it to look. But it could happen. If we would see that we can work with people that aren't as tall as us and they play with snakes in Zambia and they don't eat the same and they they don't sound the same, they don't look the same. Alabamians that talk in much more syllables than we do. Tennesseans, Kentuckians, Floridians. And here's the thing, because I heard Yaku say it this morning, not drawing lines around some of the things that we feel like we need to draw lines on because of preference or agenda but keeping the main thing the main thing. Because I'm sure if we looked at some of the bylaws and policies and statements of faith of some of these people that we've included in our service this morning, some of us might be tweaked a little bit. Or as the kids say today, triggered. But for the people that Ezra is referring to, their biggest threat to the move of God was themselves. Now, I don't say that to try to convict. Because again, only the Lord convicts. And so if you're already sitting there crafting your email to me for tomorrow, saying, Pastor, I'm not a problem. You said I was a problem. I didn't say that. That might be conviction. And all I'm asking you to do 
is that we would all do our best to not strangle a move of God. That we would all do everything we possibly can to keep Him at the center of our lives and therefore the center of our church. That we would fight for the unity that Jesus prayed for. That we would let each other know even though we don't necessarily agree with everything that they do, you're not alone. I'm with you. I've got your back. As we talked about last week, I'll hold your spit bucket. I'll be there in the dirty. And I was reminded last Sunday night of a definition of love, and I don't remember who said it, so just put a dash Travis Bush. <laughs> and this will really set up the next three weeks. Hint, hint. That love is knowing the ugliest parts of someone and staying. Love is not knowing the ugliest parts of someone and trying to fix them. How's that worked in your marriage? How's that worked in your friendships? But love is knowing the ugliest parts of each other and saying, I'm still your friend. We can still worship together. We can still be on mission together. And even though you want to hug spiders, I still love you. So this morning as the worship team comes, my question for you is this. What do you need to correct in your own life? Will you trust God over saving yourself? Will you put your faith and trust in Him? Because what I know is this. He'll never fail you. In fact, oh, where's Jerry? In fact, thank you, Stephen. Can I have him? Thank you. Um, in fact, one of the worship songs that I've had on repeat since really Camp 207, so a couple months, um, the first line in the second verse says, um, I've got joy in chaos. I've got peace that doesn't make sense. And that's what God provides. Joy in chaos. How many of you would feel like right now your life is just chaos? Come on, put your hands up. It's okay. It's all right. You want joy in that chaos? Put Christ in the middle of your chaos. I've got peace that makes no sense. Peace doesn't come from your circumstances. It comes from a person. Put Jesus in your circumstance. And you'll find peace. You bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning. We don't do this enough, but it's been a day already. Good day. My question for you is this. 
this morning was you say, Travis, I need a relationship with God. I'm not in relationship with Him. And I see today that I'm standing in the way. This message is not meant to make anyone doubt their salvation. I'll get to you in just a moment. But if you would sit and say this morning, Travis, I've never given my life to Jesus. And I want to. I'm going to give you about 10 seconds. I'm not going to draw this out. We're not going to play music or try to create an emotional response. But if you're sitting here today and you say, I need a relationship with Jesus, would you just lift up your hand? Anybody at all? About six more seconds. Anybody at all? Okay. So by that, I believe I'm talking to mostly Christians in the room. If you would sit here this morning and say, Travis, I know I've got a spider in the, ki- in the corner. Would you pray that I would have a holy discontent to deal with my spider? Now this isn't an L-shaped amen to say, I know somebody that's got a spider in the corner that they need to deal with. Would you pray for them? No, this is you. Travis, I've got a spider in the corner. Would you pray for a holy discontent and the strength from God to go step on it? Would you lift up your hand? Anybody at all? Okay. All right. All right. I see him. I see him. Okay. Anybody else? About five more seconds. Anybody else? Okay. So, Father, today, help us. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So give us the strength to walk with you, to live for you, to repent and confess. Back that up. Confess and repent of the ways that we need to. And God, may we be a people that stops drawing lines of association on the mission that you've called us to. And may we be a people that just keeps you at the center and keeps the main thing the main thing. God, we want to worship you. We want to see people know you and walk with you. We want to hear stories here that Yaku shared from Zambia of a guy he's discipling that met you and is now discipling other people. We want that to be a regular part of the conversation here at Summit Church. That's why we exist. And so God, may we see more of that among us. Get us out of the way that you can shine through all the more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.